All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning that we have together and for yet another time to um, look into your word and have it mold us and form us and shape us and conform us to the image of Christ so that we love you and we love one another much better and love others. Help us to take everything we read and try to understand quite seriously and to ruminate on it and think it over as we have opportunity to. And particularly with this topic that is... um, it's one that's almost something that I put in the back of my mind because it's kind of too scary to think of at times or too too, too horrific to grasp. Uh, so help us to talk about it rightly and uh, and be open uh, as the Scripture allows us to be. Amen. So we, we began a little discussion last week talking about hell. And uh, somebody said, well, that's an interesting topic for Christmas time. <laughs> and I was thinking, well... I was thinking this morning, uh, who knows who Jonas Salk is? Who's Jonas Salk? Uh, S-A-L-K, Mark. Mark. Jonas yes. Yeah, he was invented, uh, polio. polio vaccine. Yeah, right, the polio vaccine. Yeah. So every once in a while, uh, yeah, well, once a year, you'll see it on, on your calendars or something, you know, birth date of Jonas Salk. And you say, well, why is his birth date? So, what do I know about Jonas Salk? I know nothing about him except that he came up with the vaccine for polio. And so to us today... The younger people might be, what's the big deal? Who knows about polio? Well, polio was a debilitating, crippling disease. Uh, which president did it in fact, impact? Yeah. Uh, was it Teddy or was it FDR? It was FDR. You get half credit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, polio was a terrible disease. And, and the point being, uh, you know, we celebrate guys like that. We remember people like that uh, because of what they did that made such an impact on humanity. And so it, it, it's almost silly to sort of contemplate or talk about them without knowing what it is they're most known for. So here we are at Christmas time, and we're talking about hell. Well, we got to think about the birth of the Lord Jesus and his incarnation and what that means and uh, how he came to set the captives free. Um, his first message, right, that he gave publicly, he spoke the passage from Isaiah, including setting the captives free. So anyway, um, Matthew ten twenty eight. Uh, we left off last week. We, we did read a couple of verses contrasting the sheep and the goats, where Jesus said that the sheep would be one place, the goats would be another. Everlasting life, eternal life, versus, um, well, let me just make sure I say it in the words of Jesus, exactly the way he said it. Because this will be part of a discussion, perhaps a little bit later today, or if we go into a third week. I know it won't be next week. Because we don't have uh, class next week. And I don't know if we have it on New Year's Eve Sunday either. So we might be off for two weeks. Um, I, I don't know. So we'll come back all rusty. And 25, 40. And, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment contrasts with eternal life. Now we'll talk about that a little bit more. And what does that mean? Do we have the right to take from that verse that eternal punishment is contrasted with eternal life? Are we talking about uh, are we talking about duration of time, or are we talking about something else? Um, but we did mention last week as we closed a little bit Hebrews six one to three, where the author of Hebrews is telling them we need to move sort of beyond these sort of basic doctrines that we all know, and one of them was eternal judgment. So it's something that should be understood. I, I think it's a pretty important doctrine. Um, and it's really not one we talk a whole lot about. 
um, hell is one of those things you just want to sort of put in the back of your mind. And it, it doesn't um, – I was just talking a little bit with Michelle and saying, I'm sorry, I didn't know about Jason. I just found out, you know, last week. And uh, I said, as a parent, I mean, that just must take the breath right out of you. And it made me think of that verse in Job where Job says, the thing I dread has come upon me, you know. And it's, it's like you, you, you know about cancer, but you don't really sort of know about it until it affects you, right? And then all of a sudden it's very real. Hell never becomes real to us in any way on this earth in a sense. We don't, there's nothing to which we can relate it. We know people that are affected by cancer or have had it ourselves, so we can, we can relate to it on that level. But hell is one of those things where, like, we're never going to experience it on this earth. <laughs> Prayerfully, hopefully, faithfully, none of us in the next life either. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I remember my dad many years ago when he was alive. Um, we were sort of having a little discussion about this. He said, you're going to tell me that those six million Jews that died, you're going to tell me hell is any worse than that? After all they went through, my father was like a World War II expert, you know. He said those people that had to watch their children get taken away from them, put on trains, going apart from them, watching their little ones die on them. Uh, you know, I remember reading a story about this little boy that stole something, so they took all the Jews out into the common area of the prison, and they hung the little boy by the neck until he died, you know, and just... The kinds of things that they had to live with, seeing their friends and family shot and killed, everything taken away. I remember my father saying, you're going to tell me that hell can be worse than that, or that that's not at least what hell is kind of like? And, um, you know, at that point, someone's just sort of sharing their horror about something. It's not a real logical argument. I'm not... What, what, what do you say at that point? It's a good argument anyway. Mm. Right. Yep. But in hell, mm -hmm. hell has no hope. Uh, Matthew ten twenty eight. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And at that point, we have to sort of look into what does the word destroy mean, you know? The language, the words that are used are very difficult in the New Testament. Try to understand what does it mean to destroy a soul. Um, if, if Jesus is saying, if the body can be destroyed and we know what that means, then what does it mean for the soul to be destroyed? Um, and then there's the question of, and if, if, I think if you explore this deep enough, you end up all the way back in Genesis 1, where we ask the question, was man created immortal, or wasn't he created immortal? That's a different question altogether. Um, there were those who would make the argument that God kept them away from the tree of life so that they wouldn't become immortal in their sin. Sort of putting them out of the garden was, yes, part of the, his wrath, but also kept them from eating from the tree of life so that they wouldn't become immortal in their rebellion against him. So there's all kinds of different things that become tangents to this. The doctrine of hell is not as easy as, I don't think, is just the typical, well, you've heard Christians say this before. I think it's a little bit dismissive. 
although I think there's truth to it. Jesus talked a lot more about hell than he ever did about heaven. Well, that may be true, but Jesus lived heaven every minute of his life. Every inhale was a heavenly inhale. Every exhale was a heavenly exhale. So I personally don't really care a whole lot for that argument. I don't think it, I don't think it sort of convinces of anything. Uh, somebody that's a good arguer and a good debater could, could take that and say, well, okay, so he might have spoken about it more, but what does that mean he spoke about it quantitatively more, more times? I mean, let's face it, he did come to warn about, you know, his message was to repent. So anyway, these, these are questions that come to my mind as we go through it. So hell is a huge doctrine. Um, the doctrine of hell is important. It, it covers a lot of things, and I think it, it requires a lot of background, maybe that we sort of won't touch on, but familiar scriptures, and to raise some questions and to get us at least sensitive to, uh, always sensitive to the reality of, uh, of hell. You know, and uh, and maybe maybe we won't say things like or some people say things like, oh, I, you know, I feel like hell today or gee, this hurts like uh, sorry if this offends. This hurts like hell. You know how people say those things. Uh, There's so many words that get thrown around so very loosely. Uh, love, hate are two words that get used way too much. And, uh, you know, like everything, we just sort of throw those words around. Mark 9:48. Just going through some scriptures which give us a little bit of a basis for our sort of, I don't want to say meditations on hell, because I really don't want to meditate on hell a whole lot, uh, but our reflections on hell and how it should inform our apologetic, how it should inform our evangelism, how it should inform our compassion, how it should inform our gratitude. Uh, Mark 9:48. Alex, in, in the master's studies, and I know uh, they go all over the place, PhD studies, is hell something that is you know, in the Southern Baptist and uh, Southern Seminary? Is that something that is important sort of doctrinally? Do you find people talk about that much? Or does, it, does it fit in the studies anywhere? Gotcha. Gotcha. So, again, it's back to sort of the Jonas sock analogy. It doesn't make sense to sort of talk about one without talking about the other. That makes sense. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's another um, thing that's been used in Isaiah. Actually, it first came up in Isaiah 66, I believe. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And again, difficult in a way, if we think about things, and we're supposed to be biblical literalists. What does it mean to be a literalist, by the way? People say to you, oh, you take the Bible literally. What do they mean when they say that? What does it mean to you that you're a biblical literalist? Or how would you respond to someone who says, oh, you take the Bible literally. You're one of those guys that takes the Bible literally, Mark Fuller. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? What, what does it mean to take anything literally? 
I mean, it, I guess the best answer is to say, if someone says to you, do you take the Bible literally? Uh, I think the best response we can give is, I take the Bible in the sense in which it was intended. The author had an intention. So he was intending to communicate something. So to take it literally is to take in a literal sense what it was that this author was trying to communicate. And that might mean different things. Now, it seems to me kind of weird that a worm would continue to live with fires always burning. Do you ever go out on a sidewalk on a hot sunny day after a rainy night? You see this little beef jerky all over the sidewalk? <laughs> right? That's the worms that came out from the grass at night and thought it was safe to make it across the road, right, or whatever. And they make it about halfway through the driveway. The sun comes out, and they're done. So how is it that you have a place where the fire is never quenched, but the worms continue to live, right? So this, so that informs our sense of something, doesn't it? Doesn't that tell us that it, it means something there? That um, we're not talking about literal fire and literal worms, in a sense, or actual. We're not having a physical discussion. In the same way that we can say. If the fire is constantly burning in hell, and yet it's a place of outer darkness and complete darkness. Well, I don't know. Fire gives off a fair amount of light. I mean, a little tea candle in the living room at night gives off enough light so you don't walk into the corner of the table, right? Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to raise as many questions as I answer in this because, you know, I, I understand, I appreciate that sense of, um, you know, it's like the scripture says, uh, and, and this gets misquoted, where people say, oh, heaven is going to be great. Scripture says, eye has not seen nor ear heard. But that's a misquote of that verse. Okay? The scripture says, eye has not seen nor ear heard the wonderful things, but the Spirit has revealed them to us. I mean, people leave that part out. It's like, oh, heaven's going to be awesome. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard. It's like, wrong verse for that, you know? I mean, there's a sense of, if I were to say to Aurora, if you do that again, you're going to be grounded for a week. She would look at me like, what does that mean? Right? She knows what it's like to go to a room for, you know, 15 minutes alone with nothing. You know, she knows what it, sometimes I threaten to take away anything that ever meant anything to her, but I don't think that means a lot to her. Or, they go, or, they, or you know, you can't have ice cream tonight, or, you, you know, I'm taking away the tablet, you can't watch your movie. You know, she knows what that means. But if I tell you you're going to be grounded, she has no clue what that means. So I say all that, Tony, to say that warnings that don't have some sense of resonance with us are useless. You know what I mean? If something doesn't resonate within us, the warning is not going to mean much. So, in other words, for Christ to say where the worm does not, you know, <clears throat> die and the fire is never quenched, or if we talk about hell in general, we can't possibly conceive. I, I think you're right. We probably can't maybe grasp the extreme of it, but we can co comprehend it enough to know that it's something we've been delivered from and that that's awesome that we've been delivered from it. Uh, so, yeah, there might be a little sense of that. Uh, we can't possibly grasp how bad it's going to be. Um, 
But again, I mean, I, I'm never, ever going to know what it's like to give birth. I'll never know what that's like. I've seen my wife give birth. I'm glad I'm never going to know what it's like <laughs> to give birth, right? Because, so, when, when people talk about, when I read from Paul, you know, the creation, it's like in the chains, the, the, the pains of childbirth. I, 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 in a way, I envy women because they're going to understand that verse in a way I can't. I mean, I'm surprised Paul used it. You know, it's like, how does Paul know? Well, he, I imagine what it was like, a, it was, you know, pretty bad then. I mean, you didn't have a choice if you were going to do natural home birth in those days. That's what there was. You know, it means that that's what there was. So there has to be something that we, can, that we can resonate and relate to a little bit. So the warning has to be meaningful in that sense in some way. Uh, but it does, If maybe if nothing else, those the way that he uses that, you know, the worm doesn't die, the fire is never quenched, is to give us a sense of, well, I'm used to those things ceasing. I'm used to fire eventually going out, and I'm used to worms eventually dying, and worms are nasty and disgusting. So, you know, some sort of literary device to sort of keep people thinking that there's something very not ending about something. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm, yeah. People that will be in it, yeah. <clears throat> No deliverance. Mark 14, 21. Again, just important verses to think about, even if we don't settle everything. And he came the third time and said to them, Ooh, that's not the one I want. I don't know. Oh, that's 41. That's why. Sorry. For the Son of Man goes as it was written of him. But... Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Uh, So, Job wished he had never been born (laughs) with what he was going through. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I think that uh, I'm going to raise the question in a few minutes. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the thought is, because there is a question, it's not a real popular question, but I'll, I'll share with you the thoughts of someone that sort of argued for the potential of it, that hell is not eternal. Uh, that annihilation is ultimately the end of those that uh, um, are, are lost. <clears throat> and so one of the verses that, you know, might be talked about it. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So, does that mean does does because this verse doesn't decide anything sort of either way in that discussion? Because, I mean, you could have suffering of however long it might be, you know, a thousand years in Hades, for example, or whatever, or a short term in, uh, you know, the resurrection uh, when you have a body fitted for uh, destruction as well. Um, in some cases, it might be better to have never been born. Certainly, it would be better to have been born than not face a thousand years of suffering and torment. So I don't know that that's a decisive verse against the annihilation argument, which we'll talk about a little bit more. Because um, those are really the only options. There's annihilation. There's, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit in past times about the Jehovah's Witness soul sleep, which eventually they're awakened unto everlasting something, but they don't believe in the eternal hell. Nor do the Seventh Day Adventists. Yeah, Gary. I know that you are 
Mm. No, I have not. I uh, wasn't going to discuss that, but that's Origin believed that. No slouch. Origin. No slouch was he. Origin. Yeah. So he was one of the original opponents of Eternal Dawn. <laughs> Go ahead. I knew at least you'd get it. Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 We'll talk about that some more. We'll definitely, either this class or the next one. Second uh, Thessalonians 1 9. Now I'm just sort of sharing with us, bringing our attention to some of the biblical references to. Hereafter. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Right, right along. Pastoring over in Sturbridge, I was preaching on. Um, I don't know what I was preaching on. I preached a number of messages. This gentleman had been visiting. He really liked the messages. He liked what he was hearing until he found out I was Calvinist. <laughs> and the only thing he could bring up is John 3.16. There was the only discussion he wanted to have. I said, well, you know. I said, there's the door, pal. Don't let it hit you with God split you. You're out of here. No. I said, I said, why are you looking at just John 3:16? What what's what is how does that decide anything for you? How does that decide anything for you? Cuz it says whosoever, whosoever, whosoever. I said, "Okay, well, who's the whosoever's?" I mean, what about the other verses? Right? I hoped he came back. I said, "Let's we can talk, man. We we can sit down, we'll go through it with these verses we can go through." Uh, that I think will be very helpful in your understanding. And, and You know what I mean? Because I just don't think you can decide this on John 3.16. Anyway. He wouldn't. Um, nice guy, too. Really nice guy. He's bright. E -e -e. Let's go to the Old Testament just for one reference, okay? Um, because I think ultimately... We don't have a whole lot. We have a lot about Hades in the Old Testament. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Got busy talking about my buddy there. Mike, what was his name? John? Might have been John. Um, and his sister came to the church. She was a real bright lady, too. Second Thessalonians 1 9. Thanks, uh, Seth. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Who? Who will suffer that? Well, you can back up a little bit, right? Um, 
Those who afflict you grant relief to you who are afflicted as well. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in that day in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from, or destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When on that day he comes to be marveled at. Among the saints. I like that passage. That's my favorite part of the passage, to be marveled at. You know, just sit there for eternally going. You know, imagine having your jaw just drop for all eternity, you know? Now, that verse seems to argue pretty well for, again, this eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. And, and so a key, two key things here are, are, what does destruction mean? You know, we look back in the Old Testament, and we look at, uh, in the Old Covenant, we see references to, you'll see a lot in the Old Testament, uh, the, the, the phrase, to all generations forever and ever. Okay? And yet we know that that only pertains to the Old Covenant for as long as that's in force. Okay? So, anyone could point to some of these verses, and if I had thought about this in advance, I would have picked a few out, but this sense of, and I think you're familiar with this, that this doesn't sound completely strange to you, right? Where, Scripture says, into their generations forever and ever. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So what do we have? You know, Again, taking the whole of Scripture together, that tells us either there's a contradiction or somehow that forever and ever in the Old Testament has to do with the covenant. I mean, let's face it. This is one of the reasons, by the way, this is a... I know a lady that went down the road of full preterism, which believes Christ already returned. Everything's already happened. There's nothing left to happen. And she believed the new heavens and the new earth referred to the new covenant. And in a way, you can understand where you would get a sense of that because the new covenant is so profound. And we know that it's uh, so different than anything else that we experience because we're a new creation in Christ. So I can understand where they might go a little bit with that, but obviously went way overboard. So you get this sense in the Old Testament, they talk about the whole world a lot, which couldn't possibly have meant the entire globe. They had no clue about geography like that in those days. Most of them. For most people to hear the whole world, it just meant their little world. You know? It's like if someone would say, you darling, and I, I'm sorry, I mean, your whole world is falling apart. Well, I don't expect that means I'm going to fire up Fox News and see that, you know, the Empire State Building fell down, right? So I think that there's... You know, we always have to know the language. And in some cases, we got to get into the language a little bit deeper, too, um, so that we can, you know, most fully understand it. Uh, there is clearly some advantage to being schooled in the original languages, but not so much that we miss out on that if we haven't, because of all the tools that we have available to us today. Daniel 12, 2. But everlasting destruction, Mike. Yes. What does that even mean? Yeah. You know? I know, like, when we were learning to speak Creole, mm -hmm. um, with their limitations in language and, and just the vocabulary, mm -hmm. about 10,000 words, you have to really kind of capture the essence of what you're trying to say. The limited amount of words. So I think there's a certain, you know, we're talking about being like, well, how do you take the Bible, do you take the Bible literally? The, the, the Bible is flooded with poetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so sure. It's a lot of times they can 
sit there and think, you know, we're talking about hell and what's it going to be like. And we're, we're looking at that too with human emotions and human responses and fear and loss. Yep. yep. And, you know, mm-hmm. your dad is talking about people suffering and going through a lot of that was loss. Yep. So, you know, we tend to think about what's heaven going to be like. If we think about it through our five senses, mm-hmm. what's hell going to be like? Yes. Yeah, it does. And, and, and really, you know, Tony's point, um, one of the, the sort of the benefits of Tony's point is we're all very familiar with ending. You know what I mean? Uh, we all know that things are going to end. You know, most, uh, even, you know, for suffering, uh, you know, you know uh, R.C. Sproul's suffering has come to an end. All right. He, 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 but we're, we're, we're not used to ongoing, so to speak. You know what I mean? We know the good times are going to end, the bad times are going to end, you know? But we're very used to sort of that sort of temporal quantity of, short quantity of time, you know? Beginning, duration, end. And so, yeah, to that extent, there's no, we're not familiar with that kind of utter hopelessness. I think you probably either meant to reference or certainly by extension, you would be talking about things that we can't comprehend. We can't comprehend never ending anything. We can't comprehend never-ending elation and joy in the Lord, right? Um, neither way can we, but we certainly have enough to say, boy, I know what this is like. I don't want it to never end. Mm. Now, that's a tough concept. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Um, so we see a reference there in the Old Testament. We see a reference in this to something in that last time, whatever it meant to them uh, at that time. Um, this was in the midst of all the great spiritual war and everything that was going on, and the hope that Daniel brought with his messages and the repentance that was that uh, that he was a part of. Revelation chapter twenty, verse ten. And here we were in Todd's study just recently. Kind of, well, we've moved beyond that now, but. Revelation 20.10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented night and day, forever and ever. And 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So death is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And I can understand Hades being thrown into the lake of fire a little more easily, because Hades is sort of the temporary resting place, so the, the intermediate state. So that, that, so that tells me two things. Uh, That tells me that whatever that intermediate state is, it's temporary. But now it says death is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And in Scripture, we understand death as being total separation from God. Right? So what does it mean that separation from God is going to be destroyed? Separation from God, death, physical death, is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. See, see, this is why we have to try to find out what this sort of symbolism means in all these things, because... You almost seem like you have a contradiction uh, a little bit there. 
that death will be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be an end of death. What is death? Separation from God? Separation from... Yep. Right. Yep, this is right. That, and, it says, and that is the second death, right? This is the second death, the lake of fire. So what is the second yeah. death? Right. Yeah. Right. What is... So, I mean, these are... Yes, Gary. Understand you? Does that suggest that hell will be a non-physical reality, but a soulless reality? No, I, I think death will be the resurrection of the body of all mankind. Jesus says, uh, "The hours of right. all that are in the grave." Yes. yes. As Daniel said. So we, we do believe that even the unconverted will forever be in a body mm-hmm. existence, body soul existence, mm-hmm. just like the rest of mankind, saved, mm-hmm. redeemed mankind. What does that body mean, though, to be thrown into the lake of fire? Which is, again, why well, you have to be careful to use symbolism, because, let's face it, the physical body is a form of, when, you, when you're talking about fire, the physical body is a form of fuel. I mean, eventually that's going to burn out. Uh, so whatever this means, we've got to be careful not to take it too literally, know that it's pointing to something, but if we if we take a just sort of a wooden literal meaning to it, we, we end up with, with, with problems. Yeah, I don't know what that. I mean, I know the reference. I don't know the, the chapter verse reference. I hear what you're saying, and I would really have to look in the context to even comment on that. Maybe you can. Yeah, that's what I mean. The fires of hell, but not minimize right. the, the force of the word at the same time. Yep. So, if we think of fire in our context, it, it consumes something, it burns it up, yes. it's gone, and mm-hmm. it dies out. Mm-hmm. But fire of God, this is a fearful thing that falls in the hands of a living God. So our God is a consuming another, fire. Huh? Our God is a consuming it's fire. Oh yeah, you can't divorce the two. The Amen. Yes. So that we only have bodyless souls. That's right. That are in eternity. I agree 100. percent Yeah, there is no, you know, the idea of the split between body and spirit is a completely Greek concept, you know, and it, that was far into the Old Testament. Paul did not pick up Greek themes and run with them. He brought Old Testament understanding into a Greek culture, Hebrew. Uh, Isn't that the first of Daniel two? Yes. Many of them are sleeping. That's right. That's right. So what's in the dust is that mm-hmm. when Christ returns yeah. for the righteous, he says, Oh, death, where is your 
We also know scripture says that there will be a baptism of fire, right? That obviously doesn't mean people are going to be, <laughs> so you have a water baptism this week and a fire baptism the next week. I think I'd rather get the fire baptism first and quickly go into the water. But what does that mean? You know what I mean? So, uh, and bring all these things up just so that we're always understanding how to read our Bibles and how to understand them, okay? There's so much talk about eternal and everlasting and the, even the word everlasting destruction sounds oxymoronic, doesn't it? How does something continue to just be destroyed? But we know it can't therefore mean what we think of when we think of, I destroyed my car, my car is totaled, or, or whatever. Uh, but a, a soul, and a, a body and soul in hell is totaled. That's a totaled human. Yep. I don't know how to think about that. I don't know if any um, view of John Stott. He believes he doesn't believe in soul sleep, but he believes in annihilation. That's correct. Yeah, I'll get to that. Yeah, I found a surprise. I found some very specific writing by him. Yep, he argued against conditional morality. Conditional morality. He doesn't believe that humans were created immortal to begin with. So, um, but does he believe that after death or resurrection that there's consciousness? Yes. Yep. That's not the norm. No, it's not. You're right. And, and like, my point is Get to some, I'll, I'll get to some specific quotes from John Stott, uh, you know, who he was and why his, why his view, I think, is important to, well, to be aware of. I think you're probably aware of this, too, but John Stott did a lot of heat for taking yes. that position. Yes, he did. Uh, which came out, it, it leaked out, so to speak. Yeah. It alarmed the evangelical world. Yeah. But one of the last things that I know of that he said, you can look it up in Christianity today, mm-hmm. he called himself an agnostic mm-hmm. when it comes to post-mortem Yep. And how it will all work out. Yep. So even though you might be able to cite some passages, right. it's good to do at least show what the position of annihilation is. Exactly. Yep. But just to defend sort of the, the uh, integrity of John Stott, yeah. at least we can give him some credit. Well, he, he did not hold to it. He did not hold to it dogmatically. In any case, I'll, and again, I'll share a specific quote with you. He did not hold to it dogmatically. Um, he, he thought it was a worthy discussion to have among evangelicals and thought that it was a uh, biblically acceptable alternative to the eternality of hell. 
eternal suffering. But, but I'll, I'll share that a little bit, some of his quotes of why. Um, then uh, finally, again, on the Old Testament, uh, I'll refer a little bit more to Daniel. The eschatological judgment, eschatological judgment of Daniel, I think, is carried out by Jesus. We'll see this by looking at these two verses again. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. We just close the books and go home. The ancients of days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Now, again, this is all, uh, you know, illusion and symbolism and things like this. And we ask, what does it all mean? A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Where have we seen that, Brother Todd? I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Let's go. Let's get on that gospel bus, man. Let's get on that gospel ship and just sail off to that horizon. But I think over Matthew 25, 31 through 33, we see this carried out in Jesus Matthew 25, 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, uh, on the left. <coughs> Sorry, lost my place. The sheep, uh, And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then over again in 46 where it mentions, and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. So we have scenes of, of, of hell in the Old Testament or, or, or an afterlife of suffering. This is, and, and clearly, you know, if you go back as far as we can go to human understanding, there's always been thoughts of afterlife. Always. Um, I saw an article this week um, where this guy spent the last months and months, years maybe, Constructing what the face of this sort of pre-Aztec woman would have been like, because they found her very well preserved. They know from the DNA what the flesh density would have been in those days and heights and all that. And reconstructed the face of this woman, and they found some of the things that were with her that she was buried with in the afterlife, which showed what kind of person she was. I mean, long before Jesus, long before uh, probably Abraham came out of Ur. It's always been on people's minds. God has set eternity in the hearts of men, right? Let's just, we'll, we'll take a couple of minutes and look at what some have said about hell. Nothing like looking at some of the great old 
And now R.C. Sproul is among the ranks of some of my favorite old dead guys. Good old R.C. Um, it's interesting, too. He, was, he shared some things. He said, I was watching an interview from him in January. He was with Derek Thomas and someone else. And he had, his, you know, he had the oxygen at the time. He's been suffering for some significant emphysema for years. And what eventually took him was complications of that emphysema caused by the flu, I guess. Um, but then he said, you know, what, they asked him because he had written a book on suffering and death and that kind of thing. And they said, reflecting now in your own life, what does the book mean to you? And he talked about how he's, what it means. He says, because there are things that I deal with. He says, anxieties, for example. I deal with the anxiety of, of, of dying. He says, I fear no death at all. He says, but I'm, I'm very worried about the process of it. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be in pain. You know? So, so it's nice to see him so open and honest about that. Um, if sinners be damned, Spurgeon, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. <laughs> if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Isn't that great? Wow, what a heart that is. Let, if people have to go to hell, then let, it, let them have to leap over our bodies to do it. Isaac Asimov. Who's Isaac Asimov? Anybody know? Great science fiction writer. He wrote a whole bunch of stuff. If you ever watched the movie I, Robot, that was loosely based on some of his uh, science fiction. I believe it was atheist. I don't believe in an afterlife, so I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven even more. Get that? I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or, or fearing heaven even more. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. What a great imaginative mind this guy has. It had a great science fiction writer to say something like that. C.S. Lewis. The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded. The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded forever. That's why I said back when we were having the parable of um, uh, uh, the rich man Lazarus, in the afterlife, you live the life you lived, you love to live in life before the afterlife. Right? In the afterlife, you live the life you loved to live in life before the afterlife. You just continue to get more of what you loved about it. Or you thought you did. Of course you don't. G.K. Chesterton. Who was G.K. Chesterton? Anyone know? <clears throat> yeah, he was Roman Catholic. Uh, profound. Uh, yeah, he's a scholar. He's, you know, I, <laughs> this is, it's funny how you remember certain things. I had this, uh, is anybody familiar with Fred Sanders? Do you know who Fred Sanders is? So I had Fred Sanders as a professor at Biola, and um, he's written all kinds of stuff on the Trinity. He wrote little comic books, doctrinal comic books, uh, years and years ago. Great little comic books. Um, and he's such a profound thinker. He's like my age. And we were going to go to a... Uh, one of the things we were going to do was go to an art museum, the big art museum out there in Los Angeles. And we were having a little pre-presentation of that. And there was a picture of G.K. Chesterton bent over talking to a little boy. And G.K. Chesterton was a big man. And so after Sanders gives this discussion about what was going on this and that, and he says, oh, by the way, as soon as this picture was taken, G.K. Chesterton ate that little boy. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> so that's one of the things I always think about when I think of G.K. Chesterton. Uh, Fred Sanders, great guy. But yeah, what a brilliant mind this guy had. Read Orthodoxy if you ever want to read a little book and get a flavor for Chesterton. Uh, he says things in there like, 
you know, we take for granted so many things, like the sun coming up every day. He says, what if God's not like that? What if God is so excited that the sun comes up that he does that every day? What if God's like a little kid that every day is excited? He says, we, because of our finite, limited minds, we get like bored with things. Part of our problem is we get bored. Anyway, just a taste. He also thought that we never see Jesus laughing, but he believes that in those times up in the mountains all by himself, Jesus probably enjoyed laughter with the Father at times. Things like that, you know, just not things you hear people say. Anyway, he said, hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. God's great compliment. Oh, let me compliment you on your thoughts of human freedom and dignity of human choice. Hell is his compliment. And then, you know, as we will take five minutes, we, we need to think about among ourselves and, and, and amongst the lost, how do we talk about hell? How should we talk about hell? And here I'm going to pull some references from John Stott. Now, John Stott, I read, I found this place quite by accident online. John Stott had written a book with a liberal where they were contrasting, comparing views on certain things. Somewhere around page 300-something, there's this, this, what I'm quoting from is Stott's response to the liberals' discussions and points about hell. And Stott says, it's with great reluctance and with a heavy heart. And this was in 2005. Stott died in 2011. This was 2005. Now, John Stott, I think in 2005 or 2003, was named by Time magazine as one of the most influential people in the world. John Stott was a brilliant Anglican scholar, Church of England. Uh, I've got his commentary on Galatians and something else of his. I mean, just... Right, John Stott, you've probably read his stuff. Have you read his stuff, uh, Seth? Gary, if anyone else familiar with Stott, has anyone else in here read anything of his? You could do a lot worse than John Stott, you know. Just great, great heart, too. What a heart. And he reveals some of that heart here in some of these quotes. He says, it's with great reluctance and with a heavy heart that I now approach this subject. You quote the Grand Rapids report, which describes the unevangelized millions as human beings who, quote, though created by God, like God, and for God, are now living without God. He says, this is a phrase which I have myself often used because it seems to me to sum up the poignant tragedy of human lostness. And when it is extended to the possibility that some who live without God now may also spend eternity without him, the thought becomes almost unbearable. How we talk about hell is going to reflect on how we think about it. He says, I want to repudiate the vehemence of which I am <clears throat> capable, uh, the glibness, what almost appears to be the glee with which some evangelicals speak about hell. It's a horrible sickness of mind or spirit. Instead, since on the day of judgment, when some will be condemned, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Should we not already begin to weep at the very prospect? And he quotes a number of scriptures. Shouldn't we weep at the very prospect of that? And then he's answering the question that was put to him about, do you think it'll be forever and ever? But will the final destiny of the impenitent be eternal conscious torment, quote, forever and ever, or will it be a total annihilation of their being? The former has to be described as traditional orthodoxy. For most of the church fathers, the medieval theologians and the reformers held to it. I find, well, he says, do I hold to it? However, he says, well, emotionally, I find the concept intolerable. 
and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But our emotions are fluctuating. Unreliable guide to truth and must not be exalted to the place of a supreme authority in determining it. As a committed evangelical, my question must be, and it is, not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word say? Okay? But I like his heart. He says, I just want to crack under the, the very strain of thinking about eternal torment for somebody. It, it's unbearable for me. He's, you think you have to cauterize your feelings to, 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 to keep yourself from snapping. And then lastly, and this is where we'll, we'll pick up next week, uh, or not next week. So next week we're not meeting. Because what about New Year's? Same thing? So New Year's Eve will be here. So we're just going to miss one Sunday. Okay. So on New Year's Eve day Sunday, the last, we'll do one more class on this before we pick up on the next thing. Um, and this is, this is where John Stott sort of leaves off. And this is where, this is not inconsistent with his thing about being agnostic. I do not dogmatize about the position to which I have come. Again, this is 2005. I hold it tentatively. But I do plead for frank dialogue among evangelicals on the basis of Scripture. I also believe that the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should at least be accepted as a legitimate, biblically founded alternative to their eternal conscious torment. So that's where Stott sort of leaves off of it. And so I think it's not a contradiction for him to say I'm agnostic about it. He doesn't know where to come down on it in a sense, but he certainly believes here in 2005 uh, that it is a doctrine that there should be room in evangelical thought because in his view, Scripture allows for an understanding that hell is not eternal conscious torment, but that in fact annihilation does take place. This is a biblically acceptable alternative in his view. Now next week I'll take a look at a few of those. I mean, two weeks... Take a look at his few arguments very specifically um, uh, and, and see how we sort of handle those objections because I've never heard these objections. Uh, and until I've heard them, I'm kind of tough to struggle with them. and think Because at first, very frankly, when you read them and hear them, you say, wow, i got to make sure I understand this doctrine rightly. Because when you run up against someone that's informed and knows Scripture and is sincere and wants to have real dialogue, you can't just let emotion get in the way because I think it, it, we're given as evangelical people to sometimes be so passionate about something that our emotions dismiss, even if we know they're wrong, we, we, we can be so emotionally committed that we just shut off from hearing what they're trying to say. I said, okay, well, Scripture's written so I can have a legitimate answer for this in part, right? So that we can have a legitimate answer in our own minds. Um, I hope for all of us the doctrine of hell would cause us great distress to sit there and think about what's it like to forever never have hope. To never, ever, ever, ever have hope. Even if we deceive ourselves into having hope. On this side, part of, part of the grace of God in some ways is we can deceive ourselves into a hope that we even exist just to keep us from having a psychotic break with reality. But we have to fully understand the seriousness of hell, to know how gracious, why? It lends itself to an understanding of how gracious God has been to us and taking on human flesh. 
gives us some understanding of what Christ endured on the cross. I don't think there's a theologian that's ever lived that knows what Christ endured on the cross. I don't. Um, how can we? Um, we get a, a sense of it. I don't, but what's it like to be without sin and suffer that way? Without, without at the very moment wanting to take vengeance on the people that did this to you. I don't, uh, so anyway, I think it's a very useful doctrine in a number of ways to, to consider, as all the doctrines of God are, to help us evangelically, to, to help us uh, in our gratitude and our thanks, and to remember that those sins which we may take lightly are sins which consign people eternally to hell. That's what God thinks about sin and rebellion. It's hell. That's what he thinks about. And that should help us to understand how holy God is. So yes, we can use the doctrine of hell to comprehend the holiness of God, can't we? Thank you, Father, for our time together this morning. Lead our brother upstairs now as he speaks the word to us. Help us our hearts to be prepared by the music. Give the team up there a full anointing that their singing and, and their playing would be edifying to the soul and the body. We praise you for our time together. We thank you, Lord, that you looked upon us and had such mercy on us. Um, and help us to be mindful of that mercy. Help us to think about what truly our iniquities deserve, because if you were to mark iniquities, who could stand? And you have not treated any one of us according to our sins. And also, let us go and do likewise. In Jesus' enabling name, amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Um,